AVXL episode 203 was recorded on May 14th, 2023. Netflix has secret test patterns. Bet we got stuff you're better off using. Are 21 drivers about 18 more than any earbud actually needs? Powered speakers, Roco news, and quite a bit more. Don't forget to email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us. And thank you. Thank you. Seriously, thank you. To everyone that supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. Testing one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AVXL, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. We are both sweltering, one of us with more humidity than the other. <laughs> it feels like summertime, for sure. That's kind of nice, actually. Nothing says summer like hiding in the nice cold basement listening to music. Although I'm currently so, debating whether or not to mow the lawn because it's seeding really nicely right now. For whatever reason, uh, the grass like exploded with the seed shoots or whatever they are, like flowering in essence. I'm tempted to kind of leave that and let it finish its process before I actually chop so it all tell off. The neighbors, yeah, when they side eye my terrible front yard right now. We've not done any maintenance on our little front yardlet because we're going to terrace it out and turn it into wildflowers. So the weird side effect of my childhood with several acres of grass is that I have absolutely no interest whatsoever in mowing it. We had some city work going on, so we were taking a break from the front lawn for a while while they were installing a, a new section of sidewalk, which was kind of cool, making it <laughs> ADA compliant, so to speak, and installing those little uh, yellow bumps so folks using walking sticks could actually feel well, cool. where you enter and exit the uh, curb, so to speak. Anyway, it's something that should have been done a long time ago, I think. <laughs> Technically, though, this is not a long care podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is a home theater audio podcast. You found a really great article. Um, we've talked about as vinyl has gotten more popular over the last few years, and in fact is now exceeding CD sales, which is something I just can't even really process in any meaningful way um, because of my terrible childhood full of scratched records. There's a ton of people trying to bring record players into their houses, and it is a visceral experience. I get the whole joy of dropping the needle, and something we've talked about in various ways over the years is how you can get your record player to your speakers. And Brent Butterworth over at the Wirecutter did a fantastic article uh, collecting a lot of these things into one place, like, you know... What do you do? Do you have a Sonos? Do you have Bluetooth speakers? Do you have powered monitors? Do you want to go from a record player directly to your headphones? You know, what's a photo preamp? Do you need a photo preamp? Can you use gear you already own? Can you use that cheap AVR that's been sitting in the closet ever since you upgraded your system a couple of years ago? Brent did a really nice article updating all of that information and putting it all in one place over the wirecutter.com. If you are sitting around thinking like, I want to buy a record player, they also have a great record player recommendation. I think Chris Hynona yeah. did the 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 work on that because i'll be right flat out like record players is one of those areas where people go really insane really fast there are things you want to avoid in a cheap record player there are some cheap record players that do some very good jobs and i was having one of those moments i walked into a, an audio store uh, and I'm waiting. I'm, 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 we, we record on Skype, so I'm waiting for a certain facial expression to roll across Rob's face. <laughs> you know, and somebody was like, we have some fantastic entry-level units. You know, we usually start people around three grand. That's kind of our mid-range. You know, and I'm sitting there rolling my eyes so loud. Teenagers are recoiling in horror. Um, <laughs> it is one of those things, though, where it's yeah. very personal. If, if you want to listen to spinning vinyl, so be it. Yeah. However, this article was wonderful just yeah. in the sense of how you get it connected. Do you already have that gear that you, you may need to get this going? And if you don't have a turntable, which one would be a good one to pick out? Yeah. And that is linked through that article as well. Yeah. And I think there's a minimum amount of money I would spend on a particular turntable. But at the same point, uh, you don't have to spend a lot if you already have most of this gear already. And this was just a, a nice updated article from something Brent had done a while ago. Mm. And it was updated, I believe, less than a month ago. Yeah. So it's worth taking a look at if you are thinking about making the switch or just revisiting 
the wonderful world of vinyl and the audio that can be achieved. Or if you've got a parent or a great aunt or uncle, or or even if you, you're realizing that maybe somebody in your family is struggling with a collection of vinyl and getting it to sound good. I will say, I've run into situations right. where a well-reviewed preamp had almost no bass. Like, it, it just started around 200 hertz, or, you know, the lower third of the piano and everything below that was just gone. Um, I've had situations where the turntable speed wasn't accurate and also setting up a turntable is something worth learning how to do if you buy one because they're not always set up out of the box and resist the urge to buy, you know, start with whatever cartridge came with your turntable. Cause the other thing I have heard differences between cartridges on turntables, the cartridge being the thing that plugs into the end of the tone arm that carries the needle. Cartridges are kind of like DACs, where there's people reviewing them and saying, oh my god, this is really the first time I've ever heard the potential experience of the full joy of my turntable. And, you know, they're gushing over uh, how this, you know, basically glorified needle on your record has made everything better. And then next week, they're talking about another one that's even better than the last one. And somehow there's an inexhaustible supply of better cartridges, much like an inexhaustible supply of better and more expensive cables. That said, as Rob will remind you, if that's your thing, enjoy the hell out of it. Just don't think you have to spend, you know, used car or new car money to listen to your vinyl. And uh, Barcutter's a really good help with that one. Dude, what's going on with Netflix has, like, Disney-style test patterns built in? The, is there a they secret do? menu? <laughs> like, do. in and out? Can I get animal-style yes. Netflix? <laughs> uh, Mr. Al Griffin reminded me of this over in an article at Tech Radar, and there are some secret video test patterns available in Netflix that allow you to check and optimize some basic TV picture settings. And taking a look at how you go about actually enabling these and finding these, Netflix certainly does not make it easy to find them. Mm. And in the end, I wasn't particularly fond of any of these test patterns as they are currently presented. And I really believe this is probably why Netflix isn't making these easier to find and use. <laughs> Although... Within this set of test materials, I did find a speaker channel ID function, uh, at least for 5.1 setups, that I really appreciated. It would uh, make a vocal characterization of the individual speakers as the tone went around the room, and it made it real easy then to make sure that you're connected appropriately with your amplifier or whatever kind of speaker setup you're using. The article that Mr. Griffin did actually does provide some instruction for using these test patterns to adjust things like black level and contrast. But like I mentioned, there are better tools that are easier to find. And I think regardless of what calibration tool you use to optimize your TV's picture quality, some things to keep in mind about the source of video that you're using to make these adjustments. Uh, for streaming devices as a test pattern source, I really do suggest configuring the video settings on your streaming player to match the content's frame rate and to disable any auto HDR conversion. You basically want these test patterns to reach that display as is as much as possible. You may have to configure your streaming box if you're using an external box to match the resolution of the particular test. Uh, for example, I was seeing within that Netflix set of test patterns, you would see patterns labeled as 1080p, being upconverted by my TV or my Roku Ultra in this case uh, to 4K. And so I had to go back and check to make sure that it wasn't actually upconverting anything and mm. leaving them, leaving a 1080p test pattern as is, so to speak, to get the best possible quality out of it in terms of usability. Also, I checked my TV's video signal information to make sure that it was actually receiving the signals in the proper formats, which is something you may have to dig around in your menus to actually find that information. Uh, at least on my LG OLED TV, they make it kind of a trick almost in order to see that particular information in terms of what video format is it, what resolution, and what is the audio format to actually display that information. Now, as a better option, there is a wonderful tool called the AVS HD 709 calibration tool available on the AVS forum, and I will definitely put a link to that in the show notes. They also offer a detailed PDF that has all the instructions you need for going through this particular benchmark. Also, portions of the test material have been uploaded to YouTube, and if you search for AVS HD 709 in YouTube, you will actually find some of the more, I think, easier to use and more important tests within that test 
tool, so to speak. Specifically things like adjusting your brightness or black level and your contrast setting, like a master test pattern just for a quick check of things like overscan and detail preservation. And it can be an easy way if you don't want to take the time to actually go find the files on the AVS form and, and apply them to a disk or to your game console in a certain way. This is something that's easily accessible by just about anybody if you can reach YouTube and search for it. Now for SDR and HDR display optimization and analysis, if you want to really dive into it, it's really tough to beat that Spears and Munsell UHD HDR benchmark disc. But not everyone has a 4K Blu-ray player. If you happen to, though, and you want to pick this up, I did notice on the Spears & Munsell website there is a new 2023 update for the UHD HDR benchmark. And it is not released yet, but it says it's coming within the second quarter of 2023. So I'm keeping an eye out for that, and I will put a link to that as well in the show notes, so to speak. And of course, they also have some related articles. I have something uh, I, I cannot share with the podcast listeners yet, but we may have a tighter date on the release on that one. More as oh, we get into it. <laughs> Also, just a reminder that test patterns like these are a handy way to visualize the difference between, say, a TV's various picture presets, yeah. like how vivid and dynamic will sacrifice some bright and dark detail to provide a brighter picture overall, and how something like your cinema or movie or filmmaker presets are often closest to the factory calibrated presets that you find should require very little adjustment, especially when viewed in a darkroom environment. And either way, if you make some adjustments and you do not like the results of these tweaks, you can always reset it back to default through the picture preset menu, which is handy, just in case. Mm. It's something you should not be afraid of experimenting with, but at the same point, realize you also have that the parachute, so to speak, where you can pull the ripcord and reset everything back to how it was. <laughs> If you live in a place where you can't get a calibrator in, if you can't afford a full calibration, if you're looking to see how far your television is off from a calibration, it is worth spending your time setting down and at least making sure nobody's really jacked the settings up on your projector or your television. Um, I would like to see somebody like Disney Plus or Netflix actually go through that kind of content that they have published previously elsewhere right. and make it updated for 2023 and the various TVs out there in 4K and HDR and Dolby Vision and, you know, uh, at least offer it. That would be kind of nice. It's there and it's hidden, so to speak. But yeah, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> like I said, we, we've talked about some better ways to go about doing that and take advantage if you need to. You should. Oh my goodness. So, uh, one of the things that came out of uh, NAM, which is the big show for people who create audio, and I've been reading about NAM and talking about going to NAM uh, for about eleven thousand years, and I never remember that it's called the National Association of Music Merchants. So mentally, if you think of anything you might buy in a music store or guitar center, uh, remember Sam Ash Music Row, Forty Eighth Street. In any case, uh, it is a gathering. Oh, yeah. They do. There's a lot of monitors there. There's a lot of production equipment, and it's often a place where you find um, in-ear monitors, earbuds that are dedicated towards professional musicians. And one of the ones that was announced was uh, Ultimate Ears announced their premier flagship, over-the-top, unhinged earbud, which has. You know, and every time I say this, I want to go to the website and look. And I don't know if you've seen the the picture I put in the script, Rob. Check it out. It's uh, it's a little insane. Twenty one balanced armature drivers in each earbud. <laughs> and wow. A, yeah, it's uh, it. You know, it looks stuffed in there. It looks complicated. Just manufacturing that thing. Yes. <laughs> Because you have to get all of those that things. That is a handmade item. Oh, yeah. That can't be done on an assembly line. Well, an assembly line of some kind, but sure. those are tiny wires going to small drivers. Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. So Holy crap. it's worth, we'll put a link in the show notes to the, to, the, to the page for it. But if you want to see something pretty wild in terms of how did they do that, this is a pretty good example of how did they do exactly. that. Right? Because they have all of these drivers feeding into some tubes that eventually feed into the tube that feeds into your ear canal. So the word on this is, quote, 
Careful design and cooperation with Knowles from the choice of drivers to crossovers allowed Ultimate Ears Pro to achieve the best possible frequency response to an extended frequency range of 5 hertz to 40,000 hertz. Um, it's pretty crazy, right? Five-way passive crossover, uh, two dual sub-low drivers in parallel with four dual mid-low drivers, a quad-mid driver... Quote, provides unmatched nuance, clarity, and adaptability, no matter the instrument, genre, or listening environment. And then they've got uh, the True Tone driver and then Noel's uh, proprietary quad super tweeter, which extends the frequency range up to 40,000 hertz, which uh, is far beyond anything any human being can hear and will probably irritate bats in your neighborhood. But uh, there are people who believe that harmonics from higher frequencies impact the audible frequencies. I'm not entirely sure I buy it, but, you know... It's interesting because I've talked to some people and they're like, musicians or, you know, who are working on a stage are not always looking for the kind of listening experience they would do if they were sitting in their house or sitting in the tour van in or the tour bus in between locations that they're looking to actually hear certain parts of the music better than others, which I'll buy into that at some level. Because one of the things I've found as in-ears get more complicated, their sound signatures either get more distinct and tailored, or you could also say they get really, really squirrely. Um, you know, there's a whole collection of companies that are appealing to people who really just blow through a new set of earbuds every six months, not because they've worn them out, but because the new, new thing has caught their eye. Um, you know, EUE is pretty interesting. It kind of started, my understanding is it started as a project to keep Alex Van Halen from destroying his ears on stage. It became a company. The company was bought by Logitech uh, back in 2008. And they do really nice top-level stuff. They they either do a digital scan or you take a physical impression, a mold, a casting of your ear, and then they craft these uh, these drivers into a you know they're custom fitted, right? Most of the high-end stuff is. These are going to cost three thousand dollars a pair, which is a lot of money. They're going to be shipping, I think, this week. Um, I gotta say. I feel there's a tremendous law of diminishing returns on in-ears as you start getting, you know, I, two or three drivers is one thing. Um, I'm really curious to hear these because I'm always curious to hear them because I'm waiting for one to, you know, J.H. Harvey when they came out with their first in-ear. And J.H. Harvey, he may have started Ultimate Ears and then had a non-compete and then came back to the industry and started, you know, Jerry Harvey Audio. I, the first Jerry Harvey Audio in-ear I heard was an epiphany. It was an extraordinary experience. No one was making any an earbud that sounded that good. And now they have like, it feels like so many flavors that are targeted to so many kind of idiosyncratic frequency responses. And I, you know, people like them, people buy them. Um, I want to hear something that's super accurate. And I'm, I'm curious to hear what these sound like and whether or not it's something that's particularly tweaked in a certain way, or if it's a fairly, uh, you know, reasonable or kind of neutral tuning on that. So I'm just staring at that picture, looking at how <laughs> how did you actually manufacture something like that? I um, keep just, counting the drivers. I would love to see a how-to. Like I see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. I'm not sure. <laughs> just the placement and wiring alone is yeah. amazing to me. I mean, it looks like something done under a microscope with fine tweezers. And a lot of patience with a skilled, skilled crafts person. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, Crazy. It's, it's pretty wild. Um, it's pretty wild. Yeah, Jerry Harvey founded Ultimate Ears, I think, in 1995, and then JH Audio in 2007. There's a lot. Of, it's it's fascinating to hear some of this stuff because it, it's it represents somebody's idea of what things should sound like, and there's a lot nice. of thoughts on what things should sound like. Uh, Roku version 12 is pretty yeah, much baby. out in the world. I mean, what's it, it, for you, Rob? What's what's what are you more excited about? Local news or that they're trying to to get a more personalized sports experience in the Roku interface? I would say both. It is really turning into something that I believe is a good alternative to somebody who has internet access but doesn't have, say access to a good selection of over-the-air programming. The live TV zone, quote-unquote, is being populated with local news channels, and they're constantly updating that to make it even better and more applicable to your local area where you live, and you'll be able to receive your local channels through that. And the sports experience, again, is all the, the 
buzzword really is personalization. Be it your favorite teams you can select and keep track of, uh, having it do reminders of when that content's available, providing just more supported channels of coverage. It's there. And a function that allows you to continue watching selections that you were watching previously. Maybe you didn't finish it. Usability stuff like that. And it's being applied to the version 12 update. And the other thing I love about Roku is the fact that it's simply compatible with all of the favorite streaming providers, including your discoveries, mm. your Prime Video, Freebie, HBO Max, Netflix, Paramount Plus, uh, you name it. And Roku has its own channel, of course, that has its own free content or ad-supported content that you can take advantage of as well. So, if you have a Roku, you probably have received the update already. But if not, do check your settings and click on that update button and get the latest software for a more personalized experience in terms of what content you can get through that. Yeah. Pretty amazing little streaming service, if you ask me. I do love the continue watching where you can jump back in and uh, the fact that they're expanding that is pretty cool. Even with stars coming in the future. <laughs> I think, too, for the live TV stuff, in particular news, I normally never watch the news, especially in the over-the-air uh, capability in terms of adding an antenna or using something like YouTube TV or something like that. This is just simply adding more functionality to a device you may already have. And for that, I just I appreciate these regular updates that they keep applying. Yeah, it's a good thing. And I had a quick follow-up for the sub-pixeled rendering information I was trying to disseminate last week, or last episode, I should say. And I was talking about things like RGB sub-pixel layouts, BGR, WRGB. What the hell was I even really talking about if it got a little confusing and you started to doze off there in the middle of it? Which I wouldn't blame you, but just a quick reminder that a pixel is the smallest discrete element of a display like an LCD or an OLED. And when we talk about display resolution, that is literally the count, the number of pixels in a horizontal and vertical uh, format. Now, the pixels on an LCD or an OLED are subdivided into three or four subpixels. And the primary colors, your red, green, and blue, is usually on most displays what is represented. LG OLEDs also feature a fourth subpixel that is white for increasing the overall brightness of the picture itself. Now, for LCDs in particular, those pixels are arranged in a grid pattern and are relatively square-shaped. And even though the individual pixels are relatively small, if you try to draw something with fine line details on it, especially fonts, and you can think of this for if you're using your display as a computer display or you're trying to read text on it, uh, you can see some aliasing artifacts appear when you're trying to read that fine detail. Now, you can tweak the brightness of each subpixel individually to minimize these artifacts, and that can dramatically enhance text legibility. Now, there are technologies, especially at least on the Windows platform, called Microsoft ClearType that has some uh, terrific information on their website related to this subject, and I encourage anyone interested to check it out, and I'll be sure to incorporate a, a link in the show notes. And a quick quote from that page itself about how something like clear type technology works, a form of subpixel font rendering that draws text using the pixels red, blue, and green components separately instead of using them as one entire pixel. And when the pixel is used this way, horizontal resolution theoretically increases to 300%. And that is just one of the tricks that can be done. Rather than using that whole pixel as a single on-off device, say like if you're trying to do black text on a white background, uh, basically fonts can look a little chunky when you're trying to do that fine line detail. But if mm. you can individually turn on and off the individual subpixels, and the subpixels are usually arranged in a horizontal pattern, uh, they're split, you know, going left to right, so to speak. That's where they're talking about that 300% increase in horizontal resolution. You can individually trigger red, blue, and green on and off to better optimize uh, the curves of lines and make it so that they're less blocky looking. And I think the Microsoft article does a really good job of, of showing it in a graphical form as well as some description and, and how you go about tuning a, a system like this to make it look best on different display types, be it a subpixel layout that is red, blue, and green in that order, or blue, green, and red in that order, or something using white, red, blue, and green. And uh, there's different ways of doing it. And what I'm curious to see is, in the future, how they will optimize that kind of subpixel enhancement 
with things that are non-standard. Well, not non-standard, so to speak, but when you look at something like a quantum dot OLED uh, that uses dots that are more of in a triangular shape rather than a grid shape. (laughs) I'm laughing not because it's funny, but because it's like, you know, it's a pixel, it's a dot, how complicated can it be? And then you start going down the rabbit hole. And uh... exactly. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to seeing ClearType and technologies like that work with more different types of display technologies in terms of that subpixel layout. You know, regardless if it's a, a square being subdivided by three or a triangular shaped layout or what have you, it is something that as more and more people are using their displays or TV like devices as a computer display it becomes more important just to make them more usable and to make things like text easier to read. Good stuff. Speaking of good stuff, uh, you found a great uh, blog entry uh, by a developer named Corey Dransfeld. CoreD.dev is the blog, the website. And he asked a basic question, how would you go about creating an audio streaming service for your own collection of music files? Part of what fascinated me about this is it reminded me that there's a lot of internet and no matter how many hours I spend ignoring my children, my wife, and my job, I will not actually see all of the internet, no matter how hard I try. Because he found at least two apps that I hadn't heard of, one of which is Vox, the Vox Music Player, Astiga, uh, Rune Labs I already knew about, and Plexamp I knew about. Um, but uh, he got deep into this. He looked at Vox Music Cloud, Astiga, Rune, the one that costs money, and he settled on Plexamp. And... To answer one of Rob's questions, yes, this is a Winamp reference. The website's plexamp.com. Uh, plexamp was, they named it, it was an intent, it was a nod to Winamp, right? Uh, it's a portable player for your music collection created by employees at Plex. Uh, and it has come a long way since the first version hit in 2017. I like the philosophy of Plexamp, and I get why Mr. Dransfeld shows this. Um, you know, the, the Plex folks say, Quote, applications should have a reason to trare, i.e. you should really have, a, you know, you should be developing this for a good reason. For Plexamp V3, it came down to play music fast, don't stop. This sounds simplistic, but it did inform a lot of decisions. We'll have a link in the show notes to that because it's an interesting article that talks about, you know, kind of the process they went through to create this player, you know, why it became what it is. And, uh, yeah, I also got to say, one of my favorite lines in a long time is the opening of the history of Plexamp when they introduced uh, uh, version 3 back in 2020. Quote, the first version of Plexamp was a small, highly opinionated music player released for macOS, Windows, and Linux. And uh, <laughs> I like highly opinionated because, you know, I've run into people who want super sophisticated interfaces or very sort of active, colorful, game-like interfaces, or they want to do, you know, very specific things. And it's interesting when people kind of go in a simpler direction. Not that the latest version of Plexamp doesn't offer a lot of sophisticated stuff. And then uh, you learned a new term. What was it, Rob? Scrabble or <laughs> scrabbler or scrabbling. <laughs> Basically, it's the process of tracking the music that you listen to via third-party app. And this is kind of the key to this whole article that right. I came across. If you have your own collection of music that you store locally, how can you then do recommendations on the listening of that particular right. content when you're not dealing with, say, like a third party like Spotify? And this term is commonly associated with sending your listening history in this case, to Last FM, although there are a couple of alternative apps that perform the same function. Right. I mean, it's a weird word, too. It's all about tracking and recommending music that yeah. you know is similar to what you're currently listening to. And it was just, how would you go about doing that with a personal library? And for that, I think a very cool article, just to give me some ideas in terms of how you could go about doing something like this. There are so many variations or possibilities or directions you can go, especially if you're willing to work with open source software. So, um, something I, I caught from, uh, Axpona coverage, but hadn't mentioned, uh, the Orion three ways, they're a DIY, uh, a, a build from parts express. So it's one of those things where they have a knockdown cabinet, put all the drivers and the crossover in the box and you build it at home. It's, uh, it's interesting, right? It's, uh, it's kind of similar to some of the ELAC designs we've talked about over the years because it's a five inch coaxial mid range, or for that matter, a bunch of, uh, KEF designs we talked about because it's a coaxial mid range, uh, with a one inch silk dome treater and a pretty good size one. It's five inch 
uh, mid with a one inch uh, tweeter in the center of it and an eight inch bass driver. And they claim it goes like well below 40 hertz. And I was like, really? Because I've seen a lot of speaker claims lately that have been completely manufactured. But uh, this actually is like plus or minus 3 dB from 37 to 20,000 hertz, plus or minus 6 dB from 30 hertz to 20,000 hertz. That's pretty impressive for a bookshelf speaker. Um, $675. It's a really good price because it basically means they put all the money in the cabinet and the speakers, which is a nice direction to move in. It will take, I would say, a fairly healthy amp if you want to drive it to very high levels, right? It's a four ohm speaker. It's uh, 83 dB, uh, one watt, one meter, which is to say it's even less sensitive or requires more power even than a bunch of the speakers we've seen from ELAC, which are power hungry if you want to drive them to high levels. So when you when you have 100 watts going into this speaker, you're looking at about 96 decibels if you're seated 10 feet away from it. And then uh, if you want to get louder than that, and let me tell you some, 96 should be your peak, not your average listening level, because 96 dB for extended periods of time will damage your hearing. I'm sorry if I'm a broken record, but I don't want anybody to go deaf. Um, but that's uh, it's an interesting speaker, and it has a really flat frequency response. It's pretty impressive. So something out there. If you're looking for a speaker project, uh, hopefully those will be back in stock in the near future over at Parts Express. So, Do you think a speaker kit like that, is that something you could actually change the color of since it comes disassembled? Oh, yeah. It would be really easy, I think, to just spray paint or... Oh, yeah. They're all... Uh, you could... That, that seems kind of sweet just for that aspect alone. Yeah. It's like, you know what? I have a custom color I would love to do these speakers in. I've and seen... It, since it comes disassembled and I can take the individual, the, the cabinetry, uh, and just paint that rather easily. Oh, yeah. That would be pretty sweet. These, I'm pretty sure, are medium density fiberboard, uh, which is essentially epoxy and wood dust. And it is a fantastic material for speakers because it's fairly inert, fairly cheap. And, you know, there's no gaps you have to worry about. It's not going to resonate that much. Yeah, it's definitely uh, uh, MDF. And, you you know, you would seal and paint these. I've seen people do anything from um, painting them, doing alternative finishes on them, fabric wrapping them, veneering them. I mean, pretty much all the speaker kits are designed so that you can use whatever finish on them you want to. So... That nice. should not materially imbe- – this is not a Stradivarius where the shellac is part of the sound. You can pretty much go in whatever direction you want with it in, with impunity. Uh, and they also Currently have – out the, of stock. Yeah, but you know what? The C-Note <laughs> speakers – you know, C-Notes are in stock, which is kind of a classic speaker build. They've got subwoofer bills. The Overnight Sensation is, is one that people love. Um, and there's a couple new ones that I haven't seen before, so those look pretty good. Lots of options down there or I should say over there at Parts Express. Hey, big shout out to our patrons. Thank you to all of our patrons that have been supporting the show since we launched it back in the day. Today, we're going to thank folks who started subscribing at patreon.com slash AVXL back in 2018, starting with May 11th. That would be Lance Roberts, Jan Olaf, Eric Redmond, Henning Jensen, Stephen Reed, and Rick Hawes. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your continued support of AVXL. We really appreciate that. We're going to have a hangout next week, so keep an eye on your email or messages or go to patreon.com slash AVXL and we will have the hangout information for you. And diving into some of our listener questions, uh, we received one from Brian and he writes, Hi, Robert and Patrick. Big fan of you guys since the DLTV days. (laughs) I'd love to get your guys' thoughts on a set of speakers for my home office. And I'd like to keep it under $2,000. I currently have a pair of Audio Engines A2s and a Monoprice SSW10. It's pretty decent and has served me very well, but I'm looking to step up in terms of sound quality. I don't mind upping the budget, As we all know, quality speakers can outlast a 70s Land Cruiser in terms of features. (laughs) I don't need much beyond them being active. I'm of the opinion that fewer features means fewer things can break. Additionally, the more unique and weird the design, the better, as I really appreciate a speaker that can sound awesome and also look rad. I know Robert's a fan of the Kef LS50 Meta, which is a pair I'm looking for on eBay right now. Anyway, thanks in advance and keep spreading the AV enlightenment signed Brian. Oh, I love this question. Um, Brian, I will say I love the line about outlasting a Land Cruiser, but I'm going to add in a dry state because I literally had a 71 Land Cruiser like rust out from under me 
down the shore in New Jersey. Uh, apparently, I'm still sad about that loss. But yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's like a 60s tractor. They just never die. I should also point out that you're on the right track with being a little skeptical about having too many features built into a speaker. On one hand, they should last halfway to forever. But I should also point out that uh, powered speakers have amps, sometimes NACs, DSPs. So I get where you're going from on keeping things simple, but sometimes the, the, that additional processing allows the speakers to do amazing things. I'm just going to say that they have more things to fail than a plain set of speakers. And I'll also say that I have powered speakers on my desk right now. I've got Sonos gear that feels like it's been operating for at least more than a decade. Um, you know, just about every recording studio, video editor, whatever has powered speakers, powered monitors running. Uh, they tend to last a really long time if they're properly engineered. Choosing something new is going to be really fun. Uh, the design of your current speakers are the Audio Engine A2s. I think they go back well over 15 years. Uh, amps, you know, signal processing drivers have come a long way since they came out. And especially if you're willing to go with a bigger speaker enclosure, you will get a much more solid low end and flatter frequency response than you currently have with those audio engines. Um, I'll also say when you update your speakers, they might sound peculiar at first because the People love the Audio Engine A2, but they have a really funky frequency response. They're pretty flat from like 1700 hertz up to like 20,000 hertz. But between 1700 and 1000 hertz, they drop 7 dB, which is a pretty significant drop. And then from 1000 hertz to 150 hertz, they climb close to 10 dB. So it's got this very kind of V-ish shape and the low mids drop a lot. Um, you know, some kind of bump around 125 hertz isn't that unusual for a powered speaker. I think it was Dan Clark, the headphone engineer, that said he often puts one there to give your kick drum a little bit more, you know, impact inside your skull. But again, those audio engines, they have a pretty V-shaped curve in a lot of ways. Um, it's the kind of speaker where viewers talk about, you know, the, the measurements were ugly, and, and but they sound really good. It's just the way it works sometimes. People love these monitors. Um, when I'm looking at powered speakers, I kind of put them in two really big buckets these days, um, professional or studio monitors and more consumer-focused speakers. So professional monitors like Genelec, JBL, Kali Audio, there's dozens and dozens of them. And every time I think I've seen all of them, I find out there's a whole nother, you know, 3,000 out there. I exaggerate slightly. But generally speaking, um, most of them are designed to be super, super flat in frequency response. They generally have an XLR input. They might have XLR and RCA inputs. You're going to have to provide a signal to them, whether that's from your desktop or from some kind of box that you feed them with or a headphone amplifier. Um, you know, if you want a subwoofer, you're going to have to figure out how to wire that. More often than not, it's going to be using some uh, Y splitters on the output from your preamp. On my desktop, uh, I run the RCA preamp outputs from a JDS Lab Element. It's a headphone DAC and amp uh, to an RCA XLR conversion cable, and then into the backs of the Cali Audio LP6s. I've also powered uh, powered speakers or, or fed powered speakers from a Raspberry Pi with a USB DAC to run it remotely. Uh, they're also commercial, uh, you know, pre-made, ready-to-go products like the Weem, which is a streaming audio device that will provide a preamp uh, signal that you could plug into a pair of powered speakers. Um, You've heard me say it before. I think Cali Audio's LP6 second waves are one of the great bargains in audio gear. I use them for listening, critical listening, gaming, all that good stuff on my desktop. They're pretty good. They're pretty flat from 47 hertz to like 20,000 hertz. They're 200 bucks a pop, sometimes on sale, or if you get an open box demo refurb from Guitar Center, Sweetwater, there's a couple vendors, uh, factory vendors on uh, eBay. I've seen them as low as $125 each. Now, you say you like funky design if you're, you know, if you're willing to sort out how to to, you know, get an XLR signal into them. I am obsessed with Genelex G series. Those are kind of the consumer audio integrator version of their classic um studio monitors, the 8030C, the 8040B and the 8050B. Um this is the G3, the G4 and the G5. They come in black, they come in white. The raw aluminum finish, I think, is unbelievably cool. They're like plus or minus 2 dB from, uh, I think, 54, 48, and 38 hertz, respectively. And they'll go a tad deeper than any of those measurements, uh, if they're in a, especially if they're in a smaller room. Um, Genelec's kind of a legendary, I want to say, Finnish monitor company. They're not cheap, but they are really nice. You also called out, Brian, the Kef LS50 Wireless 2, a.k.a. the Wireless Meta. Um, that's a really fantastic speaker. Uh, the ELAC Connects is another example of a consumer-focused 
uh, speaker in the sense that it's easier to set up and it has more options built in like HDMI. LS50 Wireless 2, that's $2,800 a pair. There are some pretty fantastic deals if you get lucky on eBay or US Audio Mart would be another place to check. Um, this has AirPlay 2 Chromecast. It's a room-ready end device. They have multi-room streaming support now. Uh, you know, you use a you know, wireless connection to the second speaker or Cat 6 to connect the left and right speaker. They've got, you know, things you don't find on a professional monitor, you know, power, source, volume, mute buttons all on the top of the speaker, HDMI support, optical coax, auxiliary inputs. They support Bluetooth. They have a sub output built in. Um, the LS60 wireless towers are even more fabulous, but they are way over your budget, but a pretty, well, one, it's a very attractive speaker, and two, they, they sound pretty amazing, too. Um, Elax Connects, which begs for a sub because they're super tiny, unlike the LS50, and they also need a wire connecting to the second speaker. They don't have streaming built in. That's another candidate for a Weem box, but they also cost a fraction of the price of those LS50 Wireless 2. They've got HDMI ARC, so you can feed your television to them, USB audio, PC or Mac, Bluetooth, uh, digital optical inputs, and a phono preamp built in. Like I said, they cost a fraction of the price of those LS50 Wireless 2s, about 600 bucks. You'll probably spend another 100, 150 bucks if you want to turn them into wireless speakers. Um, a lot of people love SVS's Prime Wireless Pro. That's about 900 dollars for the pair um, you can run stream high-res audio to them over wi-fi they've got airplay 2 they've got chromecast spotify connect again they also have bluetooth um, hdmi arc inputs uh, line level rca inputs optical you got a 3.5 millimeter aux input there uh, ethernet if you want to run ethernet to them a subwoofer output and uh, you can control them via a smartphone app the front panel buttons, an IR remote, and apparently voice, although I don't know if that's native or if that requires you to use a secondary service on that one. And those are, again, pretty flat, like 42 hertz to 25,000 kilohertz. They're plus or minus 3 dB. Um, something to think about when you're looking at powered monitors, especially the pro monitors, a lot of professional audio monitors are designed to be listened to from like a half a meter to 2.5 meters or like a foot and a half, which seems a little close to about eight feet away from you. If your couch is 12 feet from the speakers, they may not be able to give you the volume or impact you want, or will have to be driven a little bit harder than you want to, uh, uh, you know, run them for extended periods of time. So be aware on that. Just take a look at what sort of the the output level on those is, um, you know, if you want to use them in a living room instead of, say, on a desktop. Some of them, like the Genelex, are pretty ready to go for that. Others may not be too ready to be put in your living room. Most of the ones that are consumer-oriented will have enough uh, volume, will hit a high enough dB level without breaking up that you will be able to happily use them in, you know, not just on a desktop or a production table, but actually in a full room environment. Hopefully. Nice. That helps, Brian. Um, there are so many different powered monitors out there. Uh, if you buy one, you know, that you haven't heard, I would also say make sure you can return it in 30 days because I have heard ones where, if, especially if you're using them on a desktop, you can actually hear humming from that. You know, some of them have like fantastic speakers and really crappy amps built in. Um, <laughs> so just be aware of that. You know, most of the really good ones are pretty quality. Very cool. God, this is just uh, all over. Just wonderful options. Yeah. I mean, and uh, some fantastic options that don't cost an arm and a leg, which always makes me happy. Um, but I will say those Genelex and the aluminum finish, freaking gorgeous. Uh, Tim Jar tweeted, uh, he wanted to know what we thought of the Roku Plus Series TVs. And he's got a TCL... 55p605 he's wondering if it's an upgrade especially if he's going to a larger screen um you know maybe should be fantastic price uh it's qled there's some really good processing going on they're roku so you know they're going to have an operating system that functions the only place it's gotten them in for testing is consumer reports in part i think because the only place you can buy them is in best buy and they appear to have fairly limited distribution even through Best Buy because if you want to order them, at least around here, Best Buy is pretty much like, they're not in your store, but we can get you them in like, you know, one to five days. Um, and I always get a little nervous about TVs that they don't have in stock locally uh, for reasons I can't articulate. Um, how are you feeling about trying Roku's latest TVs, Rob? 
my main question is who actually manufactures that? Mm. And it wouldn't surprise me if it's somebody like TCL or maybe even Hisense, but I think it's probably I think it's probably TCL to be honest with you. A- anyway, that's something to be discovered here in the near future. And otherwise, yeah, you have the Plus series in particular that does offer quantum dot color, which is going to give you that, that nice punch, especially mm-hmm. when you're looking at something like Dolby Vision or HDR10 content. And the only thing I'm thinking of that might be a downside, and this I believe was mentioned in the Consumer Reports review as well, is that if you're a gamer, this is probably not the TV for you. But if you're just a movie lover and you want something at a good value, I I am going to be shocked if these don't turn out to be very appropriate for that kind of use case. It was specifically the refresh rate of the panel itself. I believe these are 60 hertz panels. So if you're looking for something like, you know, 144 hertz support with ultra low latency for your latest gaming hardware, then maybe this isn't the appropriate display for you. But for given the price and the availability through Best Buy, it's something people can easily go into a store and take a look at if you happen to live near a Best Buy. But I'm really looking forward to somebody else and some more third parties getting their hands on it for thorough testing, especially the ratings crew. And otherwise, I would say I wouldn't be hesitant to buy it, especially if the price is really right. However, I am looking forward to seeing the latest from Hisense this year, in addition to TCL as well. TCL has some very interesting designs coming up uh, with very high brightness, uh, very good color quality. Hisense in particular is also doing some wonderful things for 2023, and those are about to drop in the retail market as well. But, But those Roku TVs are priced to go, and it's a wonderful interface for your streaming services that I have found over the years that just, it just works. And you know, your TV at least is going to be receiving updates for a good while in terms of those apps uh, and that interface. So that's the other thing too. Usability over the long term, I think it should be pretty good. And having the, the technologies I would want in an LCD, at least in the more premium version, the plus series, not the select uh, for that quantum dot light enhancement. So you get that extra saturated color is something I would uh, I would want anyway. And again, I am just looking forward to seeing it put under the fine microscope of somebody like a ratings in terms of the testing mm. to see how it does really stack up. Is it a really decent competitor with something like a value Hisense or value TCL? But if you are looking for something a little more premium and a little more gaming-centric, uh, or at least the, the ability to go down that route, that's where I would be looking at, you know, TCL Hisense or even a value Samsung at that point. Sounds like a plan. Yeah. And I had uh, one quick follow-up from a tweet we received from Mr. Kevin Kelly on Twitter. Uh, it should be obvious enough. <laughs> he mentioned that F1 MultiView, and you can go to multiviewer.app to check this out. It turned out it wasn't related to YouTube TV's and their multi-view feature at all that rolled out a couple of months ago. This, however, is a standalone Linux, Mac OS, and Windows app mm. that you then use in conjunction with your F1 TV Pro subscription, which is about 80 bucks a year. And this provides multiple streams at the same time, if you so desire, along with telemetry overlays, live timing, and a bunch of other really cool features. It's something that if you are an F1 TV Pro subscriber already, I would definitely check this out and download that app for your appropriate operating system and uh, enjoy it in a way that you can curate in almost unlimited number of ways in terms of how you want to watch that content and to be able to receive more information simultaneously in one pretty killer looking interface, honestly. And it's suddenly... uh, it's getting me to consider maybe subscribing to F1 TV Pro for a year and seeing if I really like it. I already uh, I already appreciate services like MotoGP and their yearly subscriptions for their content as well. I think that's one of the best done standalone sports subscriptions I've ever subscribed to, period, in terms of uh, having that race content available. And the way they present it, mm. uh, it's just something I think that they're very they're very good at. And I'd be curious to see if F1 TV Pro actually does something similar compared to like MotoGP. In particular, when I think of MotoGP, MotoGP does something nice in terms of they'll never reveal the winner of a race when you're looking through the menu and things like that. Or if you want to go back and look at historical content, it's all there and it's in an easy to use interface. And if you are a motorcycle racing fan, 
that is a must-have, I think, in terms of just being able to watch all the races at your convenience, or live for that matter, and having all of the, uh, the goodness in one easy-to-access spot for your <laughs> streaming service. Oh, my goodness. But, yeah, I am tempted, though, by the multi-viewer app. <laughs> the multi-viewer for F1, the unofficial desktop client for F1 TV. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I had no idea there was a Navajo version of Star Wars until May 4th this year. Um, there's a great story behind that. Uh, you can find it up on NPR or StarWars.com. Um, oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's truly awesome. We'll put the links in the show notes. Um, I got to say, I'm really, really, really looking forward to Oppenheimer, uh, Chris Nolan's next film. It's coming out July 21st. Uh, you know, Killian Murphy, Robbie Downer Jr., Rami Malek, Matt Damon, Emily Blunt, Florence Pugh, and then like Jack Quaid's playing Richard Feynman, which is, I'm pretty sure, uh, um, you know, I just feel so old <laughs> if he's old enough to actually Aww. be playing Richard Feynman. Um, oh, those guys were all young when they were uh, developing yeah. the weapon, so to speak. <laughs> the package, the device, They're in their the gadget. That's the phrase they use, the gadget. Um, good point. I had one quick YouTube mention I wanted to point out. Uh, Xiaoman NYC, this gentleman, and you mentioned Navajo, and <laughs> this person's what they call a polygot, and they speak or this person speaks an incredible amount of different languages, uh, including Mandarin, Spanish, Cantonese, Korean, Italian, Mayan, Indonesian, Hindi, African languages, Native American languages, including Navajo, (laughs) Creole, Yiddish. It is just, it's fun to watch somebody with that kind of a skill set be able to navigate the world and how that opens up interesting conversations, uh, interesting experiences, and especially if you can travel to these places as well. But given that this person's located in New York City, there and the, the, yes, he often has a chance to try out many of these languages on the respective cultures there in particular. And he mentioned recently uh, what was the most difficult language he's had to learn, and it was Navajo, without a doubt. He oh, was wow. like, okay, let me just dive right to it. He goes, like, of all the languages I know and have learned and tried to learn, he's like, that one That one was the one that was uh, <laughs> most vexing, so to speak, in terms of its complexity. Oh. And just a quick mention, I just have to re- thank you once again for the recommendation for the, S- the Sony MDR7506 headphones. I, uh, what was it, yesterday or the day before, I had those on for over 15 hours, and I, uh, impressively comfortable, is all I kept thinking. I'm currently using Brainwave's perforated ear cushions for the last couple of years. I had worn out the ones that came with the headphones Mm -hmm. originally. They didn't, those did not last long, the original Sony ones. So I personally wouldn't recommend buying those again if you've worn them out already. And I also have a pair of uh, Wicked Cushions, non-perforated, ready to go if needed, but I've never cracked those open. The Brainwaves perforated I'm currently using uh, look brand new still, even after a couple years of of regular use. And the fact that I could have headphones on for that long for one day. uh, That's a long day uh, of headphones. Um, Yeah, even I was surprised. I was like, oh my goodness, I have to stand up and go outside and get Get the hell away from the computer for a minute. But anyway, I was having a good time, and it was fun. Yay, we like fun. And those are comfortable headphones, without a doubt. They are. High performance. (sighs) Comfortable's good. If you got a question for us, if you're curious about something in uh, audio or AV or home theater or any of that good stuff, surround sound, we're here for you. Tweet at Robert Heron, at Patrick Norton, or email ask at avxl.com or if you're into tweeting tweet at avxl uh we've had some requests about moving beyond the twitters um so rob and i are going to kind of circle around on that and kind of decide what might work reddit i think is a place that might be good to reach out on although occasionally being told i'm a moron on reddit uh gets old but for the most part redditors are pretty decent people um just a thought there. If there's something you're looking for, do us a favor, email us, ask at avxl.com, and we will work on that for you. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Patrick Norton. I'm Robert Heron. Catch you next week on AVXL. <laughs>